This evening, we come to the third Christmas hymn in Luke's Gospel. <clears throat> you recall the first is the Magnificat of Mary in chapter 1, and then the Benedictus of Zechariah also at the end of chapter 1. The third is the Christmas doxology. The Gloria in Excelsis, as the Latin version of the Bible expresses it. And that phrase has come down through the hymnody of the church over the ages. Uh, the passage, of course, from the 14th verse of this second chapter. And it gives us an occasion to think of those Glorias, in addition to Christmas carols, angels from the realms of glory, and other carols that we sing in the Advent season, gives us the occasion to think of those who have featured this choral phrase, this angelic chorus, in the history of Christian music and classical music, and of course, obviously, the glory to God in Handel's Messiah would be the most obviously familiar to most of us. It is a Christmas tradition in our house that we gather around the stereo to sing Handel's Messiah, or at least sections of Handel's Messiah on Christmas Day. Uh, we all have our scores because at one time or another most of us have sung the Messiah. So uh, this is always one of the required choruses in our little Christmas uh, rehearsal or celebration of Handel's Messiah where we try to uh, sing along with the chorus on the CD. <clears throat> At any rate, uh, this would be the most familiar to most of us. But I also have placed on your outline with a link to a YouTube version. And incidentally, if you weren't here the last time, one of the easiest ways to get these links up on your computer with your speakers on <clears throat> is to go to the nwts.edu website and click on the handout for this series. And then <clears throat> when you have the handout up on your, on your screen, all you do is just click on that line and it'll take you right to the spot on the internet and you can hear it uh, <clears throat> loud and clear. It's the easy way rather than typing all that in, although you can get it that way as well. <clears throat> now I've listed uh, Antonio Vivaldi's Gloria and <clears throat> the version that's on the YouTube excerpt there is, is just the initial Gloria in Excelsis. <clears throat> but Vivaldi is uh, perhaps famous, more famous for something else, not this Gloria, which is noteworthy. Uh, <clears throat> but um, those of you who are aficionados of classical music, what uh, did Vivaldi write that you know well, or perhaps you know a little bit about? The Four Seasons, correct. <clears throat> His orchestral rendition of spring and summer and autumn and winter, uh, <clears throat> which are used in television commercials and 
have been part of soundtracks for movies, etc. But lovely, lovely uh, <clears throat> portrayal in music of what those seasons are as they come and go. Well, <clears throat> uh, that's his most famous work. But this Gloria is uh, distinctively uh, famous as well because it's a full-bodied bo- full choral version of the Gloria in Excelsis, and it is quite uh, uplifting. So it's not very long. It's only about two minutes, so it won't take a great deal of your time to listen to it. <clears throat> so if you haven't heard it, you're not aware of it, uh, <clears throat> it's good for your soul as well as for your heart, as well as you can hum along with a chorus. It's not that hard because they're just repeating Gloria and Excelsis Deo through a period of two minutes. At any rate, um, another great choral masterpiece which features this angelic choir of the Gospel of Luke. Now, the last one there is Arcangelo Corelli's Christmas Oratorio or Christmas Concert, Concerto as it's called. Again, it's a short work. It's not quite 15 minutes long in this version that I have for you uh, on the Internet. But what Corelli does here in this uh, Christmas Concerto is quite brilliant. He interfaces that eager intensity of the angels as well as that eagerness of the shepherds and plays it off against the quiet pastoral setting in which they appear. For there were shepherds out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. That's a very pacific or quiet pastoral setting, even rustic pastoral setting. But what Corelli does is he brings the angels into the scene, and the angels come with this hasten to Bethlehem message. And the shepherds then go quickly to Bethlehem. And so what he does is he plays back and forth with the tempos, the allegro, which is the faster tempo, and the adagio, which is the slower pastoral tempo, and creates a musical picture of the shepherds and the angels hastening to Bethlehem after they suddenly have revealed to the shepherds that the Christ child has been born. And in the background, when he uses the alternate tempo, when he uses the adagio, that pastoral motif, which uh, stands as an undercurrent to the the quick and very rapidly quick-paced eagerness with which they hasten to Bethlehem to see the babe in the manger. Well, at any rate, some interesting uh, pieces which elaborate on Luke's third Christmas hymn, as I've labeled it, the Christmas doxology hymn of the infancy narratives of Luke's gospel. Now, that word doxology is taken from the Greek word for glory. Doxos in Greek is the word for glory, and you'll notice that it appears in three specific places in this unit. In verse 9, the glory of the Lord, that is the doxa of the Lord, the doxological character of the Lord. 
shown round about them. And then the angels sing a doxology. They sing glory to God. In the Greek, it's doxos again. And finally, in verse 20, the shepherds find themselves mirroring that glorying of God, glorying to God. They reflect the doxology. They themselves become part of the doxological chorus. They are participants in their praising God for what they have seen and heard, both of the chorus and of the child whose life in the manger is the child who changes their lives as well. All right, now, this appearance of the angelic choir over Bethlehem at the birth of our Savior raises the question about the appearance of angel choruses in the history of redemption. And so we want to think about that for a moment in terms of the places in the Bible in which angelic choirs are said to sing or appear for the purpose of hymning significant events in the history of redemption. Now, the first one is the protological creation, or the first creation, in Genesis 1.1, which is also reflected upon in Job chapter 38, verse 7, in which the sons of the morning sang at the time when God created the heavens and the earth. That 38th chapter of Job is, of course, God's appearance to Job out of the whirlwind, and he says to him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth and the sons of the morning sang together? So there was an angelic chorus that hymned the creation. the protological beginning of the heavens and the earth. Now, uh, you may be familiar with the term ex nihilo creation. It's a Latin phrase that means out of nothing. We should add to that another Latin word, ex nihilo fiat, Out of nothing, let there be the opposite of nothing, something. Fiat creation, meaning the creation that comes into existence by God speaking the word. Let there be light. Let there be the dry land appearing. Let there be water, the the beasts and the fish of the sea and so on. Well, this phrase... Nihilo, or we'll just use nihil, Greek word for nothing, is a reference to the fact that once upon a time, before the protological beginning, before the creation of the heavens and the earth, there was nothing but God, triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Once upon a time, there was nothing but God. God himself, complete in himself. 
God himself needing nothing. God not needing to create, but he did. And he created out of nothing, or we might say he created into nothing. At any rate, this emphasis upon the fact that there is nothing but God before there is something, namely the creation, is a way of deflecting the notion that is popular in Greek philosophy and also popular even today in modern science that matter is eternal. That out of the uh, black holes or out of the condensed uh, form of matter in its origin, a big bang exploded the universe into existence, but that that black cube or that black hole or whatever you want to label it is actually an eternal form of matter. It's interesting that uh, the Greeks weren't embarrassed by sidestepping that question. That is, they were absolutely straight out honest. Matter is eternal. But our scientists hedged the bet saying that, well, you know, there is this core of matter which, you know, created the Big Bang from which the universe arose. But, of course, they, they are dodgy in, in uh, their embrace of that because they don't really tell you the answer to the question, well, where did that black hole come from? Where did that condensed matter come from? Where did whatever produced the Big Bang, where did it come from? Well, <clears throat> some of them are not being embarrassed anymore. Some of them today, and you re- you're reading it in popular Treatment. Some of them are actually affirming that the matter itself is eternal in some form or another, which, of course, is absurd. There's, there's <clears throat> no such thing in the material world which is eternal in and of itself. And <clears throat> even even the, uh, the scientists of information technology and how information is relayed through electrons and ions and so on and so forth in our computers, <clears throat> they just scratch their heads. What do you mean? Uh, you know, there's, there's information in this matter that's going to ultimately create uh, human life, etc. Well, at any rate, uh, back to our point here, namely that God creates out of nothing. There is no eternal matter. <clears throat> there's only one eternal person, and that eternal person creates non-eternal matter. <clears throat> and he creates it out of nothing <clears throat> because there was nothing there, and he spoke the word and something came into existence. So the, the movement here is from nothing before the creation to non nihil, which is the Latin for something. Once upon a time there was nothing. God spoke the word and there was no longer nothing. There was something. So <clears throat> the protological creation is this shift, this reversal from nothing to something. It's an important principle to grasp. Once there was not anything but God himself, and then God created something alongside of himself, which, however, was not eternal as he is. Okay. Using this uh, Latin vocabulary, <clears throat> We look next at the semi-eschatological creation or new creation. Uh, 
which is being sung here in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. <clears throat> the angelic chorus, which originally appeared in the beginning at the protological creation, when God brought something into existence out of nothing, the angels sing again. They sing again at the new creation, which dawns in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> this new creation is actually a provisional form of the something, known nihil, returning to the state of nothingness. Now, I'm not going to <clears throat> detail that greatly, but I do want to place this second angelic chorus in the history of redemption into the paradigm, <clears throat> realizing that there is a provisional aspect of this new creation which is dawned and is in the process of working itself out even as you and I sit here in this room this evening. Now that leaves the fully eschatological or consummately eschatological Decreation. Or uncreation. Now, why do I say it that way? Well, you'll notice <clears throat> that the angels are going to sing again. 1 Thessalonians 4:17. When Christ descends from the heavens, with the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the archangel, Matthew 25, 31, the Lord will gather himself to his throne and the angels will come with him. <clears throat> they are coming to reverse the reversal. They are coming consummately to return the, the cosmos to the state of its protological reality. They're going to decreate or uncreate. They're going to take non-nihil. They're going to take something and reverse it to nothing. You see the perfectly balanced symmetry of the beginning and absolute end of the created order. Okay? It crosses through the semi-eschatological as I said, I bracket that for the time being. <clears throat> but the angel choirs come at three specific times in the history of redemption according to the scriptures. At the first creation, at the new creation, and at the last decreation. <clears throat> and what is happening in that last consummate decreation is <clears throat> that the earth is being returned, the whole cosmos is being returned from something which existed as a result of the first creation back to what it was before that creation originated, back, back to nothing. And that reversal, back to nothing, is so that what was eternal before the <clears throat> creation of the world, what was eternal may remain. Hebrews 12:27. 2 Peter 3.17. <clears throat> so, the pattern here 
is that what is going to happen at the coming of our Lord Jesus and the final judgment is that the whole cosmic order is going to be decreated or uncreated, reverse created, so that there will be nothing again rather than something as there once was in the beginning or before the beginning, and that this eternal dimension in which God himself abides before there was anything in the beginning will also remain. That eternal dimension will remain with respect to God and the the triune God, but also will remain in terms of the body, soul, resurrected beings of the just spirits of men and women made perfect. In other words, there is an arena of eternity which is uh, full of the uh, souls and bodies of believers and of the angels and is described in symbolic terms as a great city and an Edenic paradise with a tree of life in the midst of it for the life of all who, who live and feed there. Okay. The angels here. The angels here. The angels here. The fact that this angelic chorus, this Gloria in Excelsis, occurs at the birth of Jesus is pregnant. It is powerfully connected to the drama of what is going on in the cosmos as God brings something into existence out of nothing, as God renews that something towards its glorified state and consummately perfects and glorifies it by decreating everything which is a part of its, a part of its temporality and draws it into the very arena of his own eternality without participating in his divine essence. So this pattern is the pattern of the history of redemption, and the angels sing it. It is not incidental that the angels are here at the beginning, they are here at the midpoint, they are here at the consummate end point. And incidentally, apparently nowhere else in the history of redemption do we have angelic choirs present. We have angels present, but we don't have angelic choirs hymning the significance of what has just been revealed in the eternal mind of God. All right, any questions that you have about that? Yes. And and what what is not clear? You got lost. Okay? You understand what we're talking about here? That there's nothing except God before the creation. Because of Job thirty eight verse seven. Okay? So yes. The angels are created at some point before the heavens and earth are created because Job 38 says they sang when the heavens and the earth were created. At what particular point they were created, 
We're not told. Scripture is silent on that point. But they are creatures. They're not eternal as God God is. So uh, I, I, I didn't focus on that because I assumed that you'd understand that the angels are part of the created order themselves. Now you, now you, now you do understand if you didn't. I do hope. So at any rate, this state of nothingness, out of which God creates somethingness, nihil is reversed by no nihil. Okay, nothing is reversed by something. The something is the stuff of. Heavens and the earth, you know, sky, sea, water, land, animals, beasts, man, that are talking about the visible creation, not the invisible creation. The invisible creation is the angelic creation, but nonetheless, it's still part of the created order. So that beginning is a reversal from nothingness, there was nothing, but God himself, to somethingness. And then there was a lot of something. Sky, earth, land, animals, critters, man and male and female. Now, if you move past this semi-eschatological pattern to the consummately eschatological, then what is going to happen when Jesus returns and puts an end to all of human history is that this is going to be reversed. The something that exists now in terms of land and sea and heaven and sky, et cetera, et cetera, the something is going to be turned back to nothing by the destruction of the heavens and the earth in a fiery heat, in a fervent fury, Second Peter three seventeen. And the angels will be singing when he comes to do this. That's correct, First Thessalonians 4, 17. In between, they sing a provisional realization of this. In other words, with the coming of Christ, we are closer to this happening than they were at the, than we were at the creation, than Adam and Eve were at the creation. Yes, this is Christ's birth here. This is Luke two fourteen. Is that better? Any any other? Yes, Cheryl. I thought you said the word fiat. Yes, I used the word fiat, which is the Latin verb for to come into existence or to make. So when we say fiat creation, we mean God made it by speaking it. But that's Latin. That's Latin. Yes, that's a Latin word from the from the verb facio, to make or do. But it's a technical term in theological discussion uh, to 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 believe in fiat creation means you believe that God created what we see: heaven, earth, water, seas, animals, man, male and female, etc. He 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 didn't use stuff. Okay? In other words, he didn't use previously existent matter. Okay? He brought that matter into existence by speaking. 
He, he, there were no photons before he said, let there be light. When he said, let there be light, they were created instantaneously. Okay? When he said, let the dry land appear, it appeared instantaneously. But all of this is by the, the power of his creative word, his fiat word. That make sense to you? With the car, no. I, I don't know whether Fiat, the car, got that from Latin or from Italian. I can't, I, I'm not an expert on that. Any of you out there own a Fiat? <laughs> okay. All right. Um, this integrates the, the angelic chorus into the broader picture. There are other angelic choirs at the beginning of history, at the creation of the world. There's an angelic choir. There's going to be another angelic choir at the end of history, when Jesus returns in glory. So, this angelic choir, in the midst of history, we might say, at the birth of Jesus, is related. In other words, there's an interrelationship between these angelic choir appearances, and I've tried to give you the basic pattern, particularly at the protological and consummately eschatological points in, in a pattern of symmetrical reversal. Okay. Now, let's take a look at the narrative pattern, which we outlined a few weeks back, but some of you weren't here, so let's review that narrative pattern. In the first 20 verses of this second chapter, we noticed the, the dramatic movement. In other words, we looked at these verses in terms of location. In verses 1 to 3, the action is taking place outside of Bethlehem. Then the action shifts in verses 4 to 5 as Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem. And then in verses 6 and 7, she brings forth her firstborn son and lays him in a manger. The action shifts to inside Bethlehem. So from outside, and in those first three verses, it's the broadest ecumenical, worldwide outside frame of reference. Namely, it's the world of the Roman Imperium outside of Bethlehem, moving towards Bethlehem in the next scene, verses 4 and 5, to what occurs inside Bethlehem with the birth of Jesus to his mother Mary and Joseph. Then in verses 8 to 14, we move outside Bethlehem again, but more locally, namely, we move into Judah and Bethlehem of Judah in particular, or little Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrata in the Micah 5 prediction. We move to this more local uh, phase of the action outside of Bethlehem with the shepherds in the field, and they're hastening to Bethlehem in verse 15 and being in Bethlehem to see the child in the manger in verses 16 to 19, returning in verse 20 
to their fields outside of Bethlehem at the end of the narrative. So these dramatic shifts are shifts in scene location, shifts in action, shifts also in narrative characterization, and shifts in drama. It's the reason that Luke's Christmas story is much more dramatic than Matthew's. Matthew has its own drama, but Luke has these details around Bethlehem and in the broader imperial context that Matthew does not include. All right, so that's the basic narrative pattern up to verse 20. We then uh, outlined an expansion of verses 15 to 20, which we have not yet discussed, so we want to take a look at the patterning of these verses. Having gone to Bethlehem in verse 15, the shepherds are talking to one another about what has been made known to them, and they want to see this thing which has been declared. They go then to see what has been declared to them and find the baby in the manger, which is the sign which was indicated that they would find the answer to their seeking in that child in a manger. Now, before we go on, as they look at that child in the manger, they already know something about him. Something has been made known to them. And they are coming to verify what has been made known to them in verse 16. Well, what has been made known to them? Verse 11 has told them something about this babe in the manger. And you'll notice the language there. The language of verse 11 is that this child is in the city of David, Bethlehem being the city of David. In other words, he's a Davidite. Also, his name is Savior. His name is Messiah. His name is Kyrios, or Lord. They've been told a great deal about what to find, what they're going to see. And this revelation given to them, they too are going to make known. They too are going to tell about it. And that's the reason for sandwiching what they see and have made known to them in verse, uh, verses 15 and 17, sandwiching the baby in the manger in verse 16 around it. It is extremely important that we remember that they are not coming with a blank slate. They are not coming knowing nothing about what they're coming to see. They've already been told by the angelic theophany that this is a descendant of the tribe of the line of David. This is the Christ. This is a savior. This is the Lord, God the Lord. They know this already. Now they come to see what they have been told. They come to confirm what they have, what has been made known unto them. All right, now, when they reach Bethlehem and having seen the baby, they begin to declare what had been told to them to all. Verse 18. Who heard it? All who heard what the what the shepherds were saying had been made known to, to them by the angels. Well, who are these 
all folks, all who heard it, wondered. Well, these all folks are the all folks of verse 3. So cast your eye back up to verse 3 of chapter 2. All were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. The all of verse 18 are the all of those who belonged to the registration for taxation in the city of David. Many people besides Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem to register for this census. And many of them, or at least all of them, who were on, uh, uh, who, who were aware of it in verse 18, all of them are standing around. So it's not just Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. It's not just Mary and Joseph and the animals in the barn. Or in the stable. It's not just Mary and Joseph and the animals and the shepherds and the wise men, potentially. The integration of the wise men into this chronology is a little challenging, but nonetheless we'll leave it aside for the, for the time being. <clears throat> it's not just Mary, Joseph, animals, potentially, and the shepherds. It's others who were in Bethlehem at the time. Others who were there in the streets or in the, in the uh, inns of the village or in the places where they were being given hospitality. Others who heard what the shepherds were saying. So there is a crowd here. The all is referring to more than just what we think of in those Christmas card pictures. There are a lot of people who are hearing what the shepherds are reporting. There are a lot of people who are hearing about this baby in a manger. There are a lot of people, all of whom are wondering at it. They're amazed by what they have been told by the shepherds. The shepherds are simply communicating what they have been told and and have seen. That testimony, that witness is being picked up by others who didn't have the angels appear to them and have not had that firsthand revelation of what the angels told the shepherds. Shepherds are telling them they are hearing it secondhand, but nonetheless they are still hearing the same testimony of verse 11 from the mouths of the shepherds, and they are all amazed and wondering at it. But the mother of Jesus is not amazed. She is not amazed because she is pondering these things. There is a buzz in the audience around this manger. But there is no buzz in Mary's consideration or consciousness. She is, verse 19, pondering these things in her heart. Now, notice once again the framing device. Verses 18 and 20 are framed by the expression told, things that had been told. The word seen in verse 20 could be related to the word amazed 
in verse 18, but we won't press the analogy. Nonetheless, Mary is sandwiched between 18 and 20 as the shepherds, the baby is sandwiched between the shepherds in 15 and 17. There is an interface then between what Mary knows or what Mary is also learning. There is an interface between those two elements and it is demonstrated in the sandwich structure of these last six verses. How so? All right, now think of it this way. In verse 19, Mary is focused upon her baby because the baby is the center of attention and it is the center of her affection. That is natural to be expected. But Mary is also focused on the words made known about her baby by the shepherds. She's pondering those words. How is she pondering those words? All right, well, remember that the angel had revealed to the shepherds what Jesus would be in verse 11. The angel who announced to Mary the birth and conception of Jesus had also announced a revelation about him in chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. What Mary is pondering is the epigenetical. It is the enlargement of what she knew already from chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, when the angel spoke to her, and now what the angel spoke to the shepherds. She is adding to her previous knowledge. She is growing in understanding what this child is. She is pondering what the shepherds say with what she already knows the angel said. What the shepherds said, the angel said to them, ah, Mary says. But an angel said something to me, ah, Mary says. And she's putting the two paradigms together and she's pondering and she's turning it over. She's relishing it. She's amazed by it or not amazed by it. She's quietly amazed by it when the crowd of the all people in verse 18 are, shall we say, buzzed with amazement by it. Mary is still grasping the significance of who this child is. And she's grasping it by additional revelation, additional revelation given through angelic disclosure, theophonic disclosure, that is, the appearance of angels, theophonic, describing what God has brought into history in the person of this child who is none other than his very eternally begotten son. All right, now, how do we map that out? Notice in chapter 1, verse 31, the angel tells Mary that the child that is conceived in her womb will be called Jesus. And what does the name Jesus mean? 
Savior. Chapter 2, verse 11. What does the angel tell the shepherds? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Correct. So, what she was told the name will be, the shepherds have been told the name will be. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. The angels told the shepherds that he would be Savior. She's building then upon what she was told by an angel, by what the shepherds have been told by an angel, and the two are coalescing. The two are reinforcing one another. Jesus means Savior. They say he is going to be a Savior. You see, the reinforcement in her own mind pondering the significance of this twofold declaration of the saving nature of the child that is lying in that manger. Now, once again, back to chapter 1. In verse 32 of that angelic annunciation to Mary, she is told that this child will be great. The Greek word is megale. He will be great. Notice verse 10 of chapter 2. When the angels come with the message about the birth of the child Jesus, they, accept, they say, we have tidings of great joy. Greek word megale. Once again, the very same Greek word is used. When they told the story of the great joy, the shepherds told the great story of the great joy which had been revealed to them, does Mary hear greatness in the name of this child that she has conceived? I think so. I think it reinforces that language which was given to her in the Annunciation of chapter 1, verse 32. Again, that 32nd verse of chapter 1 and the Annunciation to Mary. He will be called the Son of the Most High. She has been told by an angel that this child will be the Son of the Most High. In verse 11 of chapter 2, the angels tell the shepherds that this child is none other than the Lord. He is none other than God the Lord. Surely he is the Son of the Most High. So now Mary knows that in addition to being the Son of the Most High, that is, God Himself, the Son of God, He is the Lord. He is God the Lord. God the Lord, Son of God. He is God Himself, Lord incarnate. She is pondering these increases or advances in the self-disclosure or the self-revelation of the character and person and identity of this child whom she has just delivered. Now back to chapter 1 once again, verse 32. She is told by the angel in the Annunciation that this child, the Son of the Most High, will sit upon the throne of David. In verse 11 of chapter 2, the shepherds are told by the angelic annunciators that this child will be the Christ, the Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew. That, of course, 
is a Davidic title, a messianic person, going back to the anointed David, the one anointed Mashiach, anointed after God's own heart. Messiah meaning anointed one. Now, final thing to note is that in verse 33 of the Annunciation in chapter 1, the angel declares to Mary that the child will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In verse 11 of chapter 2, the angel tells the shepherds that in the city of David, where David was anointed to the throne over the house of Jacob, although that's not in the text there, but it is implied in that city, this child will accomplish what Mary was told, namely to reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, that specific part of the self-disclosure in chapter 1, verse 33, which is parallel in principle to the city of David uh, uh, revelation in chapter 2, verse 11, that will be expanded further. When Mary and Joseph take the child Jesus to the temple and Simeon and Anna embrace him as the redemption of Israel, the redemption of the house of Jacob. Notice what is happening here. We are observing as Luke narrates these sequences an increasing enrichment, an increasing rich description of who Christ is, even to those who don't completely grasp it all, including Mary. She is pondering these things. It is not all coming together yet. She's making sense out of it. Yes, it's falling into place for her, even as it's falling into place for others. But nonetheless, the fact that she's being reinforced, the fact that she is hearing things from the shepherds that were explicitly declared to her by the angel in the Annunciation means that her understanding of who this child is, is increasing. She is growing in her understanding and knowledge of who this child in the manger is, even as we will see this child at the end of chapter 2 himself grow in knowledge and wisdom. Because that's how humans grow. And this child is truly man, even as he is truly God. All right, now, in conclusion of this section, Mary's thoughts which she are pondering which she is pondering in, in thoughts which she, thoughts which she is pondering in verse 19 are as follows in summary He is given the throne of David The shepherds have come to the city of David He is given the name the Christ the Messiah The shepherds have come to David's city because David is a messianic figure and they call him the Christ. They call him the Messiah on the basis of the testimony of the angels. Mary 
embraces that. Pondering it, she embraces it. He is to be called Jesus, Mary is told. The shepherds call him Savior. Jesus and Savior are synonyms. She's being confirmed in what she was told by what they have been told. He is to be called the Son of the Most High. They call him none other than the Lord. The shepherds reinforce what she has been learning, <clears throat> what she had already learned, by adding to it a divine title. And finally, she, he is to be, he is to reign over the house of Jacob, as I indicated, but that accomplishment, that full weight of pondering and mulling it over, will need the appearance of Simeon and Anna in the next section of Luke's infancy narrative, chapter 2. All right, my point here is to suggest that the pattern of expansion in verses 15 to 20 here is not incidental. The similarity of sequence here, the sandwich device that is 16 between 15 and 17, 19 between 18 and 19, those devices are not accidental. They are poignant with theological meaning. They are poignant with the meaning of the self-disclosure of revelation about who this baby in the manger is. And I repeat what I said before. The in the manger phrase is like a refrain in this initial 20 verse second chapter. It's a refrain because he is the focus of all the drama here. As he is the focus of all the drama in the characters who are here. As he is in the focus in the drama of the life of Luke himself. In fact, it is that drama which has changed the life of Luke himself. As he is the focus of the drama of your life. Your life hidden with Christ in this manger. Your supreme focus and delight. And testimony. All right, well, we'll take a break there. And we've gone a little bit beyond our usual time. So... I'll grant you a little extra time to stretch and refresh yourselves. And when we come back, we'll take a look at verses 21 to 24. As you scan verses 21 to 24, I encourage you to note the features which connect these four verses. Now, there's an overall motif, which we have emphasized before in Luke's presentation of the story of Jesus. And that is the humiliation of Christ. In these four verses, Christ humiliates himself. That is, he humbly conforms himself to the law to the Old Testament 
law. To the law of Judaism. Now you will notice how he does that. In verse 21, he is circumcised. According to the law given to Abraham and to Moses. In verse 22, he is purified from the uncleanness of childbirth, once again conforming himself to the law, the law of purification. In verse 23, he is conformed to the law of the redemption of the firstborn male. Some of you have a cross-reference Bible. You should note that that provision in the Mosaic law is found in Exodus 13, verses 1, 2, and 15. And finally, Jesus humbly conforms himself to the law of sacrifice in verse 24, namely the law of sacrifice for atoning for the impurity of childbirth, Leviticus chapter 12, verses 3, 4, and 8. Luke is placing a heavy emphasis here at the time of the birth and the early infancy of Jesus upon his conformity to the law. Notice the expressions which tie verses 22 to 24 together. The law of Moses, the law of the Lord, and again the law of the Lord. Those phrases are intentionally emphatic and they tie together in concatenation those three verses. But you also notice the structural connection between verse 21 and verse 22. There is a hook pattern in these two passages. You will notice the phrase, and when the days were completed, verse 21. When the days were completed before his circumcision, verse 21. When the days were completed for their purification, verse 22. Notice the plural there. That plural there includes Mary, Joseph, and the child, Jesus. Verses 21 and 22 are hooked together by a duplicate, precisely exact Greek phrase. And when the days were completed, and when the days were completed. Verse 21 contains the symbol, the symbolic purification of a male from sin by the cutting off of the foreskin. Verse 22 contains the symbolic purification of the female in particular, 
from sin following childbirth. The Leviticus 13, the Leviticus 12 passage indicates approximately 40 days, including the eight days of circumcision. Notice what is being described here. The world of males and the world of females is a world of sin. The world of males and the world of females at the point of being generated or born into the world is a world of sin. Sin which needs to be cut off by the circumcision ritual. Sin which needs to be purified by the cleansing or purification ritual. His name, Jesus, means Savior. And here in these verses, he is featured in his role in the world of sin for males and females alike. I am saying that here Jesus identifies with that sinful world of male and female alike by entering into it humbly conforming himself to it, conforming himself to that sinful world in such a way as to submit to it in order to redeem it. Submitting to it in order to liberate it. Humbling himself to submit to it in order to reverse that sinful curse which hangs upon the world of sinners male and female alike. Luke is not making incidental ritualistic statements here. He's making profound theological statements here. How then will Jesus identify with that world, that sinful, impure world? How will he enter into that world? How will Jesus humble himself to conform to that world? He will do it vicariously. He will do it in substitutionary manner. He will do it as the vicarious bearer of the curse of that sinful world without being guilty of the sin of that world himself. Now there, there is a remarkable feature. And it is that remarkable feature which lies behind Luke's use of these four verses. He will submit to circumcision who is himself as Son of God, cut off from all sin. He will submit to circumcision as the sinless one. He will submit to purification, who is himself as Son of God, holy, pure, without sin. He will submit to purification 
who is the Holy One of God. He will submit to redemption according to the law, who is himself as Son of God, the Redeemer. He will submit to the act of redemption, who is the Redeemer himself. He will submit to offering up sacrifice according to the law with himself, the unblemished, sacrificial lamb of God. He will submit to sacrifice who is the one sole sufficient sacrifice. In each case, he will substitute himself vicariously into the law of Old Testament Israel so as to complete and to fulfill and to bear away upon himself the curse of sin, the curse of uncleanness, the need of redemption from death, and the vicarious role of a sacrificial victim. All of this, all of this as Son of God, Savior of his sinful people, he for them vicariously, them in him mystically. It is for you he has done this. It is for Luke that he has done this. It is for Luke's readers that he has done this, and that's the reason Luke records it, the profound reversal in the Son of God by vicarious participation and identification. Can you conceive? Can you conceive the majesty and grace and love of such an act? That your God would take on what was never his, because it's yours, and from you, he will cancel it once and for all. God himself will do this for you, for any sinner saved by grace. God the Son will do the opposite of himself. So that your inherent opposition and enmity to him will be taken away. All the hatred of your clenched fist raised against heaven and against its divine order, he will take that hatred away and bear it in his own loving breast nailed to a cross so that your hatred will die there with him. He takes on death without being worthy of death for he is life and vicariously cancels death's curse in his own 
eternal life. That's the significant element here. It is because he is an eternal person with an eternal life that he can cancel an eternal penalty of everlasting death. He and he alone can do it. Nothing else. No one else. Not you, not the church, not any priest, not any pastor, not any counseling. Nobody but Christ can do it. And that's the reason Protestantism, in opposed to Roman Catholicism and its heresy, says Christ alone, only Christ, and none other but Jesus. Add your stinking meritorious works to that paradise. What are you talking about? your filthy rags of good deeds. What are you talking about? You're talking blasphemy. You're talking nonsense. You're talking ridiculous worship of human beings and human traditions. That is absurd. No saint, no image, no candle, no penance is ever going to take you into heaven. Never. Don't you understand that lie? Do you understand that bondage and slavery? Christ came to pay the full penalty. Jesus paid it all. No Roman Catholic sings at him. They can't because they're trying to pay it part themselves, the rest, and all their life long. Jesus takes on the shedding of blood without being worthy of having his blood shed, for he is guiltless and vicariously cancels sin's guilt by his own not guilty eternal life. Are you not guilty? You stand before Almighty God in your natural condition and you are not guilty. I've got news for you. You're damn worthy guilty. But he is not. And the only way you're going to stand not guilty before him is if he cancels your damn worthiness guilt. Your works aren't going to do that. Your penances aren't going to do that. Counting your beads isn't going to do that. Bending in front of shrines of Mary and the saints isn't going to do that. Kissing the toe of some person from Rome is not going to do that. Not. Nine. Nada. Jesus is the one who alone is not guilty, and he alone can declare you not guilty and no one else. Don't ever imagine that someone else can pay the guilt that you owe. Or you yourself can pay part of the guilt that you owe. Don't ever think it. The devils in hell know that that is absurd, but they hate it. Jesus takes on sin Without being a sinner, for he is sinless and vicariously blots out sin in his own, without sin, eternal life. There it is again. It is that eternal, sinless life. He's the only one that has it. 
You can't shop in any other marketplace except the Jesus-only marketplace. That's the only place that you can have payment for your sin. He takes on circumcision without needing circumcision because he is perfectly cut off from all sin and vicariously circumcises all sin in his people in his bloody death upon the cross. His bloody death upon the cross as his circumcision. Hmm. In every instance, the Savior, Jesus, Son of God, unites himself to what he does not deserve vicariously, so that what we do deserve actually may be united to him. And being united to him vicariously, all of that which we deserve may be fully paid, completely satisfied, completely accomplished, canceled, annulled, never to be laid to our account because Jesus paid it all. You will find this paradigm of our Savior's submission to the blood rite of circumcision at the beginning and at the end of his life. In Luke and Luke's great traveling companion, Paul the Apostle. Together, the Apostle and the Evangelist bookend the life and death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. They bookend the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. Circumcised in blood at his birth in a manger, Luke 2.21. Circumcised in blood at his death on a cross, Colossians 2.11. It is the only place in the New Testament where the death of Christ is called his circumcision. Luke chapter 2, 11, and the profundity of the apostles' penetration into the significance of Jesus in doing the blood rite, which taketh away all sin. A blood rite performed on the Savior at his birth. A blood rite performed on our Savior at his death. Both blood rites identified with our Savior's circumcision. Circumcision via the foreskin. Circumcision via the crucifixion. Luke 2.21 compared with Colossians 2. 11. Remarkable, remarkable interaction between the gospel writer and the great apostle who was his dear traveling companion. You say it's incidental that Luke mentions the circumcision of Jesus 
In chapter 21 of chapter 2 of his gospel, I've got news for you. No, it's not. Because he knows that the Apostle Paul has already put down in writing in his epistle to the Colossian church that there's another circumcision of Jesus. Circumcision of the flesh on a bloody cross. Circumcise your hearts and not your foreskins, and the only way it can happen is if it's cut off in Christ. Cut off by the circumcision of his flesh in his own blood right initiation and in his consummate blood right propitiation. Yes, even we are pressed down into the circumcision of our Savior. For in his being cut off by blood through sin, because of it vicariously, we are rescued from it. Mystically, spiritually, and really. With those good tidings, as the other good tidings announced to the shepherds, you too may go on your way rejoicing for all that you have heard and seen as it has been told unto you by Luke the Evangelist. Shall we pray? We cannot expand the height or the depth, the length or the breadth of the riches of the incarnation of your Son, O Lord. Though we are amazed by it, though we ponder it in our hearts as we receive further self-disclosure of its importance and significance in the scriptures as we compare the writers of one part of your word with others the law of Moses with the law of the Lord of the old age the words of the apostle the words of Luke of this new age to come you drive us you drive us inexorably to your Son, O Lord. You drive us to the riches that are in Christ Jesus, even in such an initiatory rite as blood circumcision. You drive us to the profundity of the effect of him taking sin upon himself, even as an eight-day-old infant. And then magnify it as he hangs in bloody shreds upon a cross as a 33-year-old adult 
Oh, Lord, how excellent is your name and the name of your Son in all the earth. How marvelous a vicarious work of salvation he has performed in every detail necessary for the salvation of his people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying it all, completing it all, fulfilling it all for our sake. We go on our way rejoicing and glorifying you with the shepherds of old, Mary and Joseph, and all others in that little town of Bethlehem who rejoiced in those good tidings on that night. We pray, O Lord, that those who so rejoice with us may increase, even in this day of deep, deep darkness. We pray through the light of the world, your glorious Son, our Savior, whom we glorify and magnify. Amen.